We'll continue to work through our series in Ephesians this morning and uh, look here uh, again in Ephesians 5. Uh, last night, Dion and I returned from Dallas. We took a very quick trip um, up there. It was uh, Dion's birthday yesterday, and uh, mine's coming up. So uh, we ran up there and gave ourselves a gift to see our grandson. Oh, and our children. Um, and uh, <laughs> had a great time and came back. And as I drove up, and it was dark, it was late at night. We got home a little after 10. And I drive up into my yard, and I'm like, someone has done something to my yard. And you ever had your yard spooned? You know, toilet paper, do they put forks or spoon? You ever done that? Turns out our youth decided to put sheep in my yard. And so I came home to a yard full of sheep. So I'm going to need, I, and it was to say, thank you, evidently. So <laughs> grateful for that. We, uh, <laughs> I went from that moment of like, what in the world? To, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to have to have a strong word with somebody, uh, but uh, it was a great blessing to us. And so we thank you for that, youth, for doing that for us. Uh, just a, They were just saying thank you uh, to me and to, I'm not sure I didn't ask the other pastors, hopefully you guys got youth as well. I don't even know, that's a whole new term that we're going to have to have as we talk about it. Um, our lives have gravitational forces, don't they? There are gravitational forces that really play in our lives in a lot of different ways. You know, one is in our current culture, and particularly in the West, where we live, is individualism. There is just this... Oh. This mic isn't muted. Oh. I don't know what to... I have this, you guys can't see it, I have this big yellow bar that I ignored that says, your mic is muted, in anyway, um, let's try this again, how's that? This is called building anticipation, by the way, just in case you're wondering, no? All right, so I, I commit not to move from the pulpit, and when I do, I will correct myself very quickly, the or the handheld, but I'll just go for the pulpit, I think we're good. Okay, you see this? All for show, okay? And I'm not talking about this, okay? All right, no. The things you, well, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> I don't know what was just said, but I'm sure it was pejorative in nature. But in any case, look, Dion has to live with this every day. You can take it on a Sunday, okay? Uh, okay, we're, we're digression. Rab, rabid individualism, right? Uh, we just, if you think about our lives, we have these gravitational forces, they just pull on us in different ways. One of them is individualism in our culture. It really is this great deal of emphasis that we really elevate the individual uh, to such a degree that it begins to morph into things like uh, just expressive individualism. And, and we're seeing this in very ways in our current cultural context. Uh, I'm not going to deal with these this morning, but we see them. I, I mean, really outworkings now, now that you're sex and or gender can be decided by you, right? Uh, that I can decide my own destiny. I mean, really, simply put, I am master of my own life. I mean, that's, it's just this gravitational force that is just in the culture we live in that says, you know what? I determine my own destiny. The, the reality is, is that's not actually scriptural. It takes what is truth from Scripture it turns it into a half-truth, and it, it turns it in such a way that it becomes untrue. 
But that's one of the gravitational forces. But it's just this need individually for significance, this need individually to know that I matter, that God has purpose. And those are all good things. And that pulls at us. Another one that really pulls at us is community. Right? We want to belong. Innate to us is this deep desire for community, that, that somehow we want to belong to something and to other people, right? It just feels unnatural to us to live by ourselves. And, and for those of you that have lost spouses, I, I've seen this where it's like, here's a spouse, especially when you've lived with someone for years and years and years, it, you just rightfully, it doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel normal anymore. And that deep desire for community can drive us. It can drive us in negative ways, right? We will do things and join into groups that we know is ultimately not for our good, but we have such a deep desire that we will, that we will actually be pulled into it. And there's another one, though, in its significance, that we have this deep desire to contribute to something meaningful. We, we want our lives to matter. We ultimately just, we don't want to just live life and, and that's it, you know, just it happened and I'm gone. Now, I think we're all realistic, right? Uh, most of us, if not all of us, and probably I would dare say all of us, will, will not be remembered in a couple of generations. Let me just think about it. How many of you know the name of your great, great, great grandparents? Yeah, a few of you will because you're the uh, you're the ones. But I, you know, I dare say, you're the you're the exception, not the rule. Right? The, the reality is, no one's going to remember me in, in a couple of generations. Now that doesn't mean my life didn't have purpose. It doesn't mean my life doesn't have significance. It just means realistically that it's not a name of renown, right? That, and that's okay. But that also doesn't mean I don't care. It doesn't mean I don't want my life not to matter. And I think we all sit there. We want our lives to have significance in other people's lives. And this morning, I want us to see, that as we look at this passage, that that actually can be found in fulfillment, at least in part, in the way we live within Christian marriage. Now hear me carefully. I'm not saying that you have to be in a, in a married state. You don't have to be married to have significance, find fulfillment. That's not what I'm saying. However, I want you to see that these gravitational pulls and forces can actually be fulfilled within the context of a Christian marriage. God can actually use a Christian marriage to fulfill our need to find significance as an individual and in community. And not just within the marriage itself, that there is a greater implication for what it will do and what God can use it for. And while your name and your marriage in and of itself may not be remembered, God can use that for glorious things for others. If you look there in Ephesians 5.22, we will be walking through this passage, but I want you, as we look at this, is to see that, that God has designed Christian marriage to show the gloriousness of the relationship between Christ and the church. I want you to see, particularly within Christian marriages, 
Now, God can do that in non-Christian marriages, but I want you to see, for those of you that are, that are walking with Christ, that you're living together and you're saying, we are seeking to live out godly things in our, our marriage, to live for Christ, that what God can do is use that because he designed your marriage to show the gloriousness of the relationship between Christ and the church. Or to put it slightly more succinctly or another way, is that God has designed Christian marriage to show the gloriousness of the gospel. God has designed Christian marriage to show the gloriousness of the gospel. Now, God would want to show that in other marriages as well, but what you need to see very particularly and specifically is that if you are both followers of Christ and you are married, God has designed that in your marriage to show the gloriousness of the gospel. I really believe if we can catch the vision and conviction of what God has designed marriage for, it will change the very nature of how we live within those marriages and how we relate with each other within our marriages. And I think you will see that out of the passage this morning. It will change the way in which we live within our marriages, and it should change it. And it will change how we relate with each other. That it, it just changes the way that those who aren't within Christian marriages should look and see our marriages and say, there is something distinctly good and different about that marriage. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean they're not without challenge. It doesn't mean you won't go through times of struggle or hardship or even conflict. But there is a difference in the way in which you will relate and live out your marriage. I want to start by just pointing out two contextual realities about this just before this passage. We've read these, and, and just notice, in Ephesians 5.18 it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, our marriages are to be a living out of being filled with the Spirit. I want you to see, right, if you look at that, that little section as we looked before, there's four participles that follow the last one is the submitting to one another. But notice that it builds from that imperative, be filled with the Spirit, and gets down to these next set of imperatives that we're running into. Look, simply put, you are to live in your marriage being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. It should change the way in which you react and act in your marriage. Secondly, is look at verse 21, submission within marriage is compelled by what? And I've said this before, it's compelled by reverence for Christ. Now, I know I've spent, I spent a, a week just saying, hey, this is what submission is not. You know, and I went through 10 things that it's not, and I could list more, it's not an exhaustive list. But it, succinctly put, submission does not mean subjugation. It doesn't mean you just do it because you have to. It actually means you do it compelled by reverence for Christ. Now just keep that in mind contextually, and I want to go back and revisit and remind us also of the biblical context, the greater what we call the canonical context. I've labeled it biblical because I think it's a more familiar word, but canonical meaning if you look at the grander story of the Bible. Now, we're not going to spend this morning to go through all, but if you read your Bible, you begin to realize just how much marriage is used throughout the Old and New Testament. But I want to go back literally to the beginning and talk about what was God doing. 
Look in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. I mean, literally go very, back to the very beginning. It's on page 2 and 3 of the Pew Bibles. I just want, I'm going to summarize the story here of what happens in creation and fall, particularly as it relates to our marriages. In Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 16 and 17. Now, if you're looking at Genesis 2, you have to remember, Genesis 2 is a detailed account of how God comes about to create Adam and Eve, how this comes about, right? You read Genesis 1, you get these broad understanding that God creates everything, which is why God can, can have a rightful demand upon our lives. He created us for a purpose, and that's Genesis 1, 26, 27, we are to bear his image. We are, we are to be God imagers, glorifiers by who we are. But now he's going to get real specific about the marital relationship and what's going on. In Genesis 2.16, he is speaking to Adam. And this is important. Notice who he's speaking to and who is not there. Eve is not there because she has not been created. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Adam is overtly told, Do not eat of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very specifically, an implication is because he is to rely on God to define those things, not his own ability. Then when you look at Genesis 2.20 is when you see Eve come on the scene. It says that the man gave name to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field, but, Adam, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. He looks through it all. He sees all these animals, and he goes, he's naming them, he's seen them, and he... he it's Sesame Street, right? One of these things doesn't belong together. One of these things doesn't belong. It's me. I don't fit with any of these other ones. Because God was making a point to Adam. There is none here created like you. And then he says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place of flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You notice God supplies the need. Adam doesn't come up with his own solution. And then he responds to what God has provided. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I found the one that matches. This is the one that I am to be with. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, there's much that can be implied from this and such, but one of the things you need to realize is that Adam saw and recognized, unlike any of the rest of creation, this woman was the one that he was to be with because she was fit to be the helper. The rest of it was not designed that way. She was the one to help carry out the mandate that God had given. 
If they were going to be image bearers, there was no other way to be image bearers and create more image bearers unless there was Eve. Does that make sense? I mean, this is the story of what's being told. There's only one that's fit, not the rest of these animals that I see. And so God provides, and what we can see is that there is a helper that God intentionally gives to carry out the mandate of being God imagers together. It's, it's not a picture, and this is where you go back to Genesis 1, 26, 27, of unequals. It's actually, notice what he says, it is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's a way of saying she's like me, unlike any other that exists. It's, it's her. It's an expression of equality in essence. It's an, an expression to say, she, I need her. Do you understand? She is the one, if, without her, I can't carry out what God has designed to happen. And so this isn't like, I'm the important one and this is the less important one. Do you understand? No Eve, there's no Aubrey and there's no Sophia, right? I mean, you understand that. This is how it works. This is the design of God. And so we are to come together. That's why we call it a one flesh union. Notice in 2, 24 and 25, Genesis 2, 24 and 25. As it speaks then, the conclusion to this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They're going to act like a single being. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sin is not there. They, they realize God has set us out for a purpose. We are designed to be with one another. And we're going to act together. It's an, it's an act of cooperation, right? Collaboration is going on. We're going to carry this out. Not competition, not condemnation. They can be with one another. I mean, that's, it's an interesting phrase. They were naked and not ashamed, right? They could see each other fully for who they were, and this was not shame and guilt, but they literally could say we can live with one another and cooperate, collaborate, and carry out the mandate to image God, to be fruitful and multiply and have more image bearers that will glorify God. And this is a good thing. But then what we see is the fall. Just notice how the narrative progresses so they are set out in a good, intentional purpose to create image bearers through their relationship as part of what they're doing. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. They're going to fill the earth. They're going to subdue it. And not originally for their own gain, but what? For the glory of God. Now that's going to get broken in the fall. We call it the fall because they fell into sin. They, they fell from their righteousness before God. And so, in Genesis 3, 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, I've skipped over, right? It's the whole account of how Eve is tempted, falls into sin. She obviously knows. Adam relayed to her, we're not supposed to eat of that tree. She falls, and then Adam, it says, she gave the fruit to her husband, and he partook of it as well. And so they both enter in it, but notice who's called to account by God first. Isn't it interesting? In the story, who took the fruit first? Eve does. But who does God call to account first? Adam. 
It says that the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And then you find out based on Adam's response, you read there, he reveals he'd eaten the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he says, well, we were naked. And, and God's like, and how did you know that? Because the only way you would have known that is if you rebelled against me, that you would react that way of shame. And, and Adam blames his wife. He says, the woman you gave me. I, 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 you Forget the woman. She came bone in my phone, bone in my flesh. Now it's like, God, you did this. Like, you gave her to me. You know, no. And Adam turns, you notice what happened. Adam is called to account first. He holds the primary, primary responsibility. And then Adam does something even more sinful, and he tries to, to blame his wife for his lack of leadership. Well, it's her fault, not mine. What? No. It's not like she forced you to take the fruit. You, you took it. And what you need to see here is that what God has done is he's held Adam to account first. But he doesn't stop there because then we see what continues to happen. So Adam is the one who all of a sudden goes from, hey, we're going to collaborate, cooperate, to I'm going to condemn her because I'm going to lay the blame at her feet instead of mine. And then you go through the judgments. He talks to the serpent, then he talks to Eve. And he says to Eve in Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So that's part of the curse. And then he also says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. See, part of the outworking of the fall is this curse of competition and condemnation rather than cooperation. And you need to see that because of what the gospel is going to do to our marriage is what it brings to bear. What we see is kind of two major points. The principle of headship or leadership in marriage of the husband in marriage is grounded in the created design. Okay, before the fall, who does God communicate with? Adam first. This doesn't make Eve lesser. It just means, Adam, you have a primary responsibility to lead. And unfortunately, we'll see because of the way things work and it, it betrays our view of leadership. It viewed as if somehow that gave Adam greater worth or, or somehow he was more important. It's not. That's just what he is responsible for. The other thing that you see is that the curse of the fall is what brings contention and competition rather than collaboration and cooperation within marriage. You realize the tension that we feel in our marriages when we're, we're, we're fighting and conflicting and, and going through that, that is a result of the fall, not the result of creation. Right? The fall brought us to this. The, the reality is everyone who's married knows this, and, even, and everyone who's not married knows this. When you go into marriage, you all bring a sinner into it. It's yourself. Some, we all have different issues that we bring into the marriage, right? We, we just do. Um, I can tell you, one of, you know, as I came into marriage, one of the things that I brought in, and it can sound so noble, was perfectionism. Yeah? Okay, if you have five children, you can clean a house, and what can happen in a matter of minutes? 
Everyone's laughing. You know, I hear the laughter like, oh, yeah, you, you can waste an entire day in like a minute and 30 seconds as they rip apart all you've done. And I could walk in as a husband and, and because because and, Dion stayed at home with our kids and I could walk in and there's a biblical term for this. It, it's jerk. Okay, maybe it's not biblical, but that's what it is. And I walk in and I go, why is the house a wreck? You know what, why are you laughing? KJ's like, and you're still alive. I mean, he's just laughing. I'm still here to preach. Okay, there's a biblical term for that. Jerk, right? King James uses a different word. I'll let you find it, okay? The reality is, what has happened? My sinful, self-centered desire that I would just like to come to this pristine environment is, it has taken over. And I walk in and I bring, that's part of the sin I bring. Doesn't it sound noble? I'm a perfectionist. I just want things done really, really well. We do it with excellence. We don't, that all sounds great until you bring the tornado of five children. By the way, we had five children in six years. You do the math, right? That's like, you know what that is? That's like seeing a hurricane and then a hurricane and then a hurricane and then a hurricane. And a hur they just do that. That's just how it works, right? There's a good work in the Greek for this. It's the word idios. Guess what we get from that? Yeah, yeah, someone's an idiot. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know what, it's, you know what it literally means? Of oneself. I am focused on myself. The, the thing is, when we go into marriage, we all bring that into it. And what it does is we start colliding in our own selfishness. That's not a result of God's creation. That's a result of our rebellion. The gospel does something. And this is why I'm saying to us, the Christian marriage is supposed to look different when we look at this. Now, I want you to see that there are actually cultural misapplications of what occurred in Genesis 2 and 3. I'm going to give you one from the Greco-Roman culture, and I'm going to give you the other from the Jewish culture. And I want you to see this because of who Paul is writing to in Ephesians. In the Greco-Roman culture, Aristotle wrote this. There are by nature various classes of rulers and ruled. You, you see the two classes that he created? You're either a ruler or you're ruled. For the free rules the slave, the male, the female, the man, the child in a different way. In the Greco-Roman culture, it was seen that the man was to rule the wife. In the Jewish culture, Josephus writes, and Joseph, now realize Aristotle is, is several centuries before the time of Christ, but it comes forward and, and, and brings that idea in this Greco-Roman culture, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. In the Jewish culture, Josephus writes something eerily similar. And Josephus lived during the time of Christ. We actually use Josephus to prove extra-biblically that Jesus existed, that he was there. Josephus writes, the woman says the law is in all things inferior, excuse me, when you, get, when you don't use the commas the way, they don't read right, right? This is, uh, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. You realize that these reflect each other in the Greco-Roman and in the Jewish cultures. They had seen what had happened in creation and in the fall, and they basically said, you know what? 
the woman is inferior in some way, shape, or form than the man. And that puts the man in the rightful ruling place of authority. The problem is culturally that sometimes we sound way more like Jews and Greeks than we do Christians. And we've seen this throughout history. We, we, we summarize it as patriarchalism in, in its worst form. Well, we just do whatever the man says. And that's not where God started. He actually says that's something that's an outworking of the fall. See, one of the things that I want us to be convinced of today, this is not how you should relate in the marriage. You could probably you probably fill in this blank. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But so often we basically say, if dad doesn't get his way, then nobody's happy either. And the reality is, is both those are wrong. Because you know what they're both based in? Sinful selfishness. Right? It actually, ironically, is more an observation about how we sinfully live rather than the way we should live in godly ways. I, I, I'm just, what I want us to see in our marriages, within our body, is it should not be that way. It shouldn't. That if in your marriage you're, you're doing it because you're giving them their way, which either direction it goes, that is sinful. God did not put a responsibility on man to lead so he just get whatever he wanted. Remember, what's the greater purpose? It's to be image bearers, to fulfill the mandate and glorify God. And Paul's going to show this to us as, we, as we're looking here. Now, you've got to flip back over to Ephesians 5. And, and I want us to see this in Ephesians 5. What Paul says the gospel is supposed to do to our marriage. What is it supposed to do? And it's particularly going to be shown in verse 23. The first thing that I want you to see is that the gospel brought a revelation in our understanding of marriage. The gospel brought a revelation in our understanding of marriage. Look there in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. Okay, That is a coming up under a person's leadership. And as I've argued in weeks past, that is a willing coming up under. That is not a forced. Forced coming up under is subjugation. I'm making you do it. A willing coming up under is what is called submission. I've chosen to do this and bring it up, come up under this leadership. But it be, it should, you should be compelled to do that. One is because you do it out of reverence for Christ, ladies. And there is more because it's doing something in the gospel. Notice verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And the problem is, so often that's where it stops. Right? If I chop off, and we're going to that last phrase, it sounds like, well, ladies, obey your husband like we should obey Christ. How do you obey Christ? In everything, in all ways, without exception, that's how you're supposed to obey. Well, then, what do I do if I've got a sinful husband? Well, hold a second. That's why this phrase, and is himself a savior, is so important. 
Because it's, it's setting Christ as the example of what is supposed to happen in marriage. Christ had a purpose in what he was doing. And it was to save his bride. Guys, and I'm talking to guys, men, particularly you husbands, your wife should be compelled to follow your leadership because what you are seeking is her salvation and sanctification. I have a hard time believing that ultimately a Christian wife would look at a husband that says, what I am trying to do is make sure that you grow in godliness I grow in godliness, right? This isn't just you need to be godly and I'm already godly. This is I am doing this because we need to see how we can glorify God together. And so is it not hard when you look and say, I can see what this man wants. He wants my good. You see, that's why that little phrase, and is himself its Savior, is so important. Because that shows to us what Christ was doing as the head of the church was seeking the church's salvation. Man, do you seek that in your wife's life? See, here's the basic point. Our marriages are all about Christ and the church. That's the revelation that the gospel brings. It's, it's later called, we'll get to, a mystery. It shows to, something we didn't realize. It is all about Christ and the church. And so if you make it all about you, you are not carrying out the Christian purpose for marriage. What you've done is, is you've embraced a partial message I am supposed to lead and used it for sinful purposes, men. Bluntly, do not do that. That is sin. That is selfishness. But the other thing I want us to see is that the gospel brought a reversal in the cultural understanding of marriage. You heard me read the quotes. It basically sounded like that the women had to be under the thumb of the man because he's, you're going to do what he's told you to do. And that may have been true in non-Christian marriages. In fact... Peter has to deal with that in 1 Peter later. Like, what do I do when I'm in that situation? And he talks about how, how wives can show the gospel through a, a gentle submission, even in, in, in a marriage where a husband's not being godly or doesn't know Christ at all. But here, it is important we understand, he is addressing a Christian marriage. You both should be equally compelled to glorify God. And it shows that there is a reversal in the cultural understanding of marriage. And let me build a little bit what I mean by that. In the, in the, the Hippocratic understanding, Hippocrates, it's where we get our, our Hippocratic oath for doctors. This goes back centuries. You realize, in, in our modern world, if I told you, and I, I can look, there are, some, there are some medical professionals here. Sorry, i got to remember not to step back. There's some medical professionals here that you know, right? And I've been helping my son study for his paramedic exam, which soon I'm going to be able to pass for no apparent reason. What causes your blood to circulate? Your heart. Yeah, you're like, I'm not a medical professional, but I do play one in church. Yeah, thank you. In the Greco-Roman world, Hippocrates, that's not the way it was understood. 
It was understood that there was veins that came out of the head and that the blood flow came from the head into the body. So guess what you protected at all costs? The head. And we, we may not hear this when we read Scripture because we don't think of it that way. How many of you came in today thinking, oh, all the blood comes from the head? You're like, only when I'm hanging upside down, that's where it all pulls, right? The reality is, is that's the way they would have thought about this. And so what that meant is that the body was responsible for protecting the head. Because if you lose the head, you lose the entire body. And you actually see this when, when they talk about Caesar. He's the head of Rome. And everyone must be willing to protect Caesar because what happens if you lose Caesar? You lose Rome. Now, hear Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife even as not Caesar is head of Rome, but as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is its what? Savior. The body doesn't save the head. The head, gentlemen, saves the body. It reverses the very picture of the way marriage is supposed to be lived. This would have been radically, almost offensive, probably offensive to some. Hold a minute. You mean I, as the head, must sacrifice for this body? Yes. That's exactly what the gospel calls us to do. Why? Remember the context we're to live being filled with the Spirit, and we live out of reverence for Christ. You see, within marriage, what, what male submission, as it were, looks like towards their wife is you will give up your very life, not just physical, your hopes, your aspiration, your desires. You will give those up if that's what's necessary to, sa to save your wife and save your, your wife and have her sanctified so she can glorify God. That's what we are called to, men. And this can be in the littlest of things. The littlest of things. It's not because you are just giving in. It's not just because if mommy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It literally is because if mom needs this so that she can be sanctified, I'll do that. That's what I'll do. And, and what I need us to see, it's so vitally important because remember, our marriages are not just about us. They're about Christ and the church. They're about the gospel. Tell me it's not a compelling witness to the world around us when we say and show through our marriages, I am willing to sacrifice my very hopes and dreams if that's what it takes so that my wife will be sanctified and glorify God. Does that not change the witness that you're giving? It better. It should. Because we're not in this for our own self-gratification. We're in this for God-glorification. You know, Ray Ortland says, marriage is not a human invention. And it's not. Who invented marriage? God did from the very beginning. This was not a tack-on this was something that God designed into the way we're created. It's not a human invention. 
It is a divine revelation. It is showing something that can only be shown through marriage. Because of that intimacy of relationship. What I want you to remember is God has designed Christian marriage to show the gloriousness of the relationship between Christ and the church. That is what he's doing. And remember that God has designed Christian marriage to show the gloriousness of the gospel. This call to submission, ladies, is not a call that you just do whatever you're told. If that's what what your husband thinks in a Christian marriage, that is sin. Plain and simple. They have a responsibility to lead in such a way to lead you to glorify God, not to resent Him. Men, our call to lead in our marriage, to provide that covering, is that our wives would find it sweet fall under our leadership because they know it is not about us. It's about, it's not about me. It's about us, you and your wife together glorifying God because you're one flesh. We cannot be a church that's identified by men who take advantage of their position nor women women who spurn their responsibility to glorify God. We must act as one flesh together to show the gloriousness of Christ in the church. Your marriages are part of the Great Commission. It is a way that God shows the gloriousness of the gospel. I pray for you that are walking together in Christ. See it that way. See it as a gloriousness of the gospel. And I finish with this for your reflection. What is your marriage displaying? Is it displaying the gloriousness of the gospel? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your goodness to us. Father, help us that we would not embrace false views of what marriage is and think somehow it's a draconian and oppressive relationship. God, how our sin has destroyed the gloriousness of the gospel to be displayed in marriage. Help us, Father. Give us hearts, husbands and wives that are fallen after Christ, to be those who follow our Lord's example that we will sacrifice ourselves at all costs for the gloriousness of God, even the cost of our own desires. God, help us. We want to be those who honor your word so that our, our Lord is lifted up and you're glorified. Help us. It is not easy, Father. Our sin so rears its head. We are fleshly people. Help us, Father, to be spiritual people, to be filled by the Spirit and glorify you with our marriages. Use us, Father, so that the gospel will be known. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.